Well, it is a pleasure to again open up God's Word as we continue on with our sermon series as we make our way through the book of Romans. And it's a pleasure to welcome all of you, those in person, those checking this out online, those on our Moon campus, those of you in our classic venue, wherever this finds you. It is good to be together and good to have God's Word in front of us as something that can lead us and guide us. And today it has some topic for us that we're going to dig into that is going to, I believe, be very encouraging and hopefully spur us on to to greater steps in our spiritual walk. Today, we're going to be talking about things being made new, being made new. Companies and entrepreneurs are always working to try to make things new, to remake products, to re-image products, because if they can do so, if they can make them new and improve, then there's, there's more money to be made. And I saw some different items that are kind of in that category of things that are being made new, maybe products that had existed that they're trying to improve upon and what have you. I thought I'd, I thought I'd share a couple of those with you. For instance, here's one right here, this paintbrush. It just kind of sits on, slides onto the paint can, and that's not going to drip all over everything. That seems like that that might be something that would be that would be beneficial. Maybe you'd like to get one of those. Or there is now a flash drive where it actually has an index that shows you what's on the flash drive. Wouldn't that be nice to be able to know what's on all those little things that are floating around your house? You don't know what's on which one. Or uh, here's something else. This is a combination sink and toilet. It's kind of clever. You actually wash your hands in the sink, and that's the water that then fills the tank. You're going to save water that way. Now, these are all things that are being made new. I don't know if they're going to catch on, and we're going to have these in all of our homes or not, but I know there's a greater chance of those catching on than some of these. Here's here's another one. This is real. Mustard-flavored ice cream. Who would like some mustard-flavored ice cream after the service? We have one person. All right. Uh, one person is one more than there should be, but, uh, but there you have it. Or uh, there's also a Cheetos lip balm, Cheetos flavored lip balm. That's something that, uh, that's also a real thing. Or then there's also orange juice and toothpaste flavored Lay's. All right, that one's not real. I, at least I don't think that it's real. It shouldn't be real. All right, but uh, a, lot of, a lot of new products that are always being brought out and, and people, inventors, entrepreneurs, companies are trying to make things new because if they do, there is money to be made. Now, in the case of those products, I don't know if any of those are going to really catch on and uh, be successful. You never really can know with that. But today what we're going to do is we're going to talk about something else that has been made new, where we can have absolute certainty of the success that it is going to have. And it's at that 100% level. And what we're going to be talking about is something that we find in the book of Romans, in Romans chapter 8. Go ahead and turn there, open up your scripture journals, your Bible. Romans chapter 8, we finally, I've, honestly, I've been, I've been really looking forward to getting to Romans chapter 8. This is an amazing, amazing chapter of the Bible. In fact, commentators and theologians, many of them have said that Romans chapter 8 is the greatest chapter in all of the Bible. 
I mean, that's a pretty, that's a pretty bold statement to make. And, and many have made that statement. And honestly, it's kind of hard to argue against what they are saying there. And one of the reasons this is such an amazing chapter is because it gives us the theological foundation for who we are in Christ and who we are positionally in Him. But it's not just a theological treatise. It goes beyond that, and what we're going to see is that Romans chapter 8 is not just this highfalutin theology and doctrine, but rather it deals with the issues that we'll, we deal with. It deals with the struggles that you and I face, and it helps us to know how to address where we are and how we move ourselves forward. What has set us up for chapter 8 is chapter 7, and actually all of the previous chapters in Romans, but in Romans chapter 7, if you remember from last week, if you were with us, the Apostle Paul there talked a lot about problems, a lot about issues, a lot about needing to be made new, because what he told us there, if you remember, he said that I do the things that I don't want to do, and I don't do the things that I know that I should do. And so he finds himself in this real challenging sort of spot. In fact, he bemoans with these words, what a wretched man I am. Now, that's pretty significant, wouldn't you say, for the Apostle Paul just to kind of come to the place where he says, what a wretched man I am. And if we're all honest enough, whether in the room or watching somewhere else, if we're honest enough, we would have to acknowledge we are in that same boat, that we're really wretched people when it comes to sin ourselves because we also were in the category of people who do things we know that we shouldn't do and, and don't do things that we know that we should do. This applies to us. You know, sometimes Christians are criticized for being sort of holier than thou or for suggesting or for being at least thought to be or looked on as being kind of these self-interested hypocrites, right? You've heard that sort of criticism. In fact, you might be here today and you might are listening today and have that sort of perspective. Well, that's certainly not the perspective of the people who are writing the Bible like the Apostle Paul. And I don't believe that it's really the perspective of the vast majority of people around Pathway either. We're ones who recognize and understand what Paul is saying. And we would raise our hands and say, yes, that's me too, doing things I know I should do and not doing the things that I know that I should. Left to ourselves, we're going to find ourselves in a world of hurt. We're going to find ourselves stuck without hope. But the good news as we come to chapter 8 is that we're not stuck at all. This is great news, that we are not stuck at all. The message for today is that for ones who are followers of Jesus, who have given their hearts and their lives over to Christ, that we have been made new. This is what we're talking about, that we have been made New. Now, just what that means and how that's accomplished is what our passage is all about and what we're going to dig into here today. We're going to see that there isn't anybody who is beyond the possibility of being made new, of finding hope in the midst of your issue, of finding, of finding a hope in the midst of your struggle, whatever that might happen to be. And we all come from different places, but God is going to, I believe, meet us in the midst of that need as we just open up this amazing chapter. And there are a few features of being made new that he deals with here. And I just want to give these to you, try to unpack this a little bit. And the first feature is of being made new has everything to do with a new promise. Therefore, your outline as you're jotting these down, put this in your journal. A new promise is the first step of being made new. New. To this point in Romans, Paul has spent several chapters helping us understand the nature and the extent of sin. It's persistent, it's deceptive, it's deadly, 
and it's universal. It is something that impacts all of us. We have looked on, as Paul mentioned a couple of chapters ago, original sin, that doctrine of original sin. It deals with Adam in the Garden of Eden and how he, he failed there, how he sinned, Adam and Eve both, and, and how that brought sin into the world. It's referred to as the fall of mankind, and, and that has affected all of us. Everyone have been affected and infected with sin. Nobody has escaped. Of course, I probably don't need to try to convince you of that because you have the witness and the testimony of your own life where you can look and see where you've been and see the things that you've done. And you would be able to raise your hand and say, guilty is where I find myself. And that can be very discouraging. Satan is very good at using our past guilt and our present failures to try to suggest to us in our mind that we really are worthless, that we don't have anything to offer, that we're just failures from start to finish, and you may as well just put yourself out to pasture because you don't have anything really to offer God because of the way that you just continually are messing up day after day and month after month when you want to do the right thing, but you just can't. It's like, and it sort of steals that conviction that we might have in our heart or this, this devotion that might kind of come upon us, the desire to do something. And we kind of get reminded of, of how well we'll probably do that because of how poorly we've done things in the past. And it just sort of leads us to this, this sort of blah feeling when it comes to who we are in Jesus or who we are as someone who has anything at all to offer to the church or offer to Jesus or to offer in service, and it discourages us from actually taking steps forward. But Paul knew all about that sort of discouragement because he experienced it himself. But thankfully, even though he recognizes it to be this constant irritant in his own life, he knows that it doesn't have the upper hand. And so he comes off of chapter 7 where he's been talking about the wretched man that I am and how I fail more than I seem to succeed and, and all of these problems. And he comes right out of that and he launches right into chapter 8 where he says this, look at it, chapter 8 and verse 1. He opens up by saying this about a new promise that is ours. He writes, verse 1, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. I can hardly think of a more encouraging sentence, verse, a more hopeful statement than that. There is now no condemnation. He is one who's just been saying, I've failed, I've failed, I've failed, we've failed. And here's my news for you. He says, there's no condemnation for you. Despite where you've been, this is who you are. And this is how you can see yourself going forward as a believer in Jesus Christ. Now, condemnation is a legal term that talks about a change that comes into our lives. Condemnation talks about this circumstance we find ourselves in where, where there are things that stand against us. There's a charge that is against us. There is a sentence that we deserve because of the people that we are, because of the way that we have lived. In a court of law, somebody might be condemned with a life sentence because of something they have done. Well, in our spiritual lives, we also deserve to be condemned because of the things that we have done. That is what is owed to us, that sort of condemnation. 
But thankfully, what happened is that Jesus came into our world, and instead of us having to take that condemnation on ourselves, he took our condemnation on him. And he goes to the cross. He is the one who is condemned, who deserved no condemnation whatsoever, in our place, took it on himself so that we might have that death sentence removed from us. Jesus took our sin on himself and was condemned in our place. So there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Amen, amen indeed. I was hoping for more amen, but it deserved more amen, but, but there you go. The fact that there is no condemnation means that the debt no longer exists that the debt that you otherwise owe no longer exists. On a couple of occasions, I've been out to eat here locally, kind of usually for lunch, and, and I'll go into the restaurant and I'll see somebody in there that I know, maybe from Pathway or something, and I'll, and I'll walk over and I'll greet them briefly and talk to them for a moment before I, I go to my table and stop pestering them and they can get back to their lunch and I'll be with whoever and, and we'll eat our lunch and the time comes to, to leave and, and to pay the bill and I'll you know, get out my credit card or whatever for the server and a couple of times it's happened where the server says, oh, well, that person who is in here paid your debt. They have paid for your lunch. So I don't have, and whenever that happens, I, I am just so very appreciative. And I always think, I should have ordered something more expensive. That, I mean, that's, no, not really. Well, sometimes I think that. But it, it just makes me feel so positive when somebody pays my debt like that. So much so, in fact, that I just wanted you to know that Monday I'm going to be eating at El Paso. And Tuesday, no, 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 no. You, you understand, right? It, in our performance mindset, the idea that there would be no condemnation or no debt that would be put upon us just seems unbelievable. But that's exactly where we find ourselves. We believe that God's love is, is conditioned on how good or ho, how obedient we are. And this is a message that we propagate. And we do so probably unwittingly, but we just kind of keep passing it down from generation to generation. And parents say things to their children that propagate this myth. You might say something to your children like, you know what, if you're not obedient, God's not going to be happy with you, or God's going to be mad at you. And so our parents just kind of pass it down to the next generation, and then we sort of pick up on that, and we keep passing it down. Well, the truth is that you're, as the parent, the one who's going to be mad at your kid. You just want to blame it on God. You want to manipulate their behavior, but you want to use God to do it. And the consequence of that is that generation after generation have been taught this idea that if they're not obedient, then God is going to be mad at them, which suggests the opposite, which is you have to be obedient. And when you are, then God will be pleased with you. You will earn God's favor, which means that we have been propagating this myth all along that you have to and you can earn God's favor. And children today... Children of pathway people are being taught that. Maybe not intentionally, but it is the message that is being communicated. But you cannot earn God's favor. But when we get to that place, we start propagating this myth. We move ourselves down that road and we teach our kids the wrong understanding of what Jesus has come to do. And some of us today are still really wrestling with, either through our parents taught us or what the church we grew up in was teaching us, 
that this is where it's found. But you cannot earn God's favor. That is something that is given to us. Paul has made that very plain in previous chapters in Romans. It only comes through God's grace. And grace changes everything. It is a gift that we are given. God's acceptance isn't determined by your behavior. It's determined by Jesus's, by his behavior, by what he does, how he lived his life. And by his behavior, it means that for every believer in Jesus, there is no condemnation. How can Paul be so bold with that claim? Verse 2. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. This is a brief description of the gospel from Paul. He says that we've tried to live up to the requirements of the law. Why do you do that? Why did the Old Testament Jews do that? To try to earn their way to God's favor. To try to earn salvation. Living up to the law, we can earn our way there was the, was the idea. And we've talked many times about how that is a failed idea. Paul says here in this description of the gospel that we've tried to do that, but we couldn't. So what happened instead is that Jesus came on the scene as fully man in the flesh came into our world and he took on for us that sin to atone for our sin, which was something that he didn't need to do because he fully lived up to the law. He was perfect, but he took it on himself and was therefore able to die on behalf of those who did have sin because he did not to fulfill the requirements of the law or ultimately to satisfy the wrath of God. And when a person puts their trust in Jesus, an amazing thing happens, and that is that the work of Jesus on our behalf becomes applied to us. We are declared as ones who have no condemnation against us, and we are given the Holy Spirit of God. And in verse 2, we just read it. He says that the Spirit gives us the power to live a different life. And it's when we live under that power that we demonstrate that we've been forgiven And once we've been forgiven, we're at the place where what is declared of us is that we've been made new, there's a new promise that is ours, and that we are not condemned. And it's important that we would keep this in the right order. Jesus illustrates this for us in the woman caught in adultery in in John chapter 8. The first thing he tells the woman is that her sins are forgiven. Now, go and sin no more. That's what he tells her to do. What we oftentimes do is we turn that around and take on the attitude and suggest, well, if you'll go and sin no more, then you'll be forgiven. You'll earn your way essentially to God is how we twist that around. And that's the traditional legalistic message that we've heard, that we maybe have propagated. But let me tell you, it's impossible What would ever lead us to believe that we in our sin, just being told, just go and stop doing that. Where's the power come for being able to overcome the sin that has been tripping us up all the way along? 
Is it just because you should go and pull yourself up by the bootstraps? Is it because you're feeling extra guilty? Is it because there's some sort of motivational speech that you're given? Sometimes those things can, can kind of motivate you for a moment. You're saying, all right, I'm just going to do better. And then you just don't do better because you're trying to operate out of the same abilities or the same resources that you had to begin with. What Jesus is saying is that needs to be turned around. There needs to be something to infuse you, something to change you so that you might be equipped to go and sin no more. And in this case, he says, it's forgiveness. It's submitting ourselves to God, seeking his leading, recognizing we live under no condemnation, taking on the power of God's spirit, verse 2, so that we might be able to overcome and live a new life. There needs to be a change so there is some power available for us to change how we live. And that's the power of God's spirit. This is why we can have so much trouble overcoming sin. We try to do it apart from the forgiveness and the grace of God. When we fall into the sin, instead of being Paul-like and saying, wretched man that I am, who's going to rescue me from this body of death? We say, I can do better. I can rise up over that. And we try the same things that we've been trying and we fail the same way we, we failed before. And we propagate that, some of us, for years and years and years. While all the while there was available to us the power of the Spirit that could have helped us to overcome. If only we would have humbled ourselves and rested in that and acknowledged, I cannot do this on my own, but I recognize there is no condemnation. I have a new promise and a new ability to rise above. That's what he's calling us to. And as we do so, we can be and will be made new. One feature of being made new is that we live under a new promise. Then also we live with a new mind. That's the second thing, a new mind. Paul is very concerned that we'd be living under the influence of the Spirit of God because the alternative would lead us to great harm. He says there's just two ways to live. Verse 5, he speaks to him. He says, for those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. Just two ways, he says, we can live, that we can make the choice to live. The first is this, we can live in the flesh, he says. That's characterized by self-interest, by personal pleasures, by pride, by, by sin, by self-direction, essentially. All of those things that are, that are of us in our natural person, apart from, from God. That's one of the ways that we can live is in the flesh. The other way, he says, that you can live is in the Spirit. In the Spirit. That's a life controlled by the things of the Spirit. Selflessness and humility and God control in our life and righteousness and a God-directed life. And it's interesting that Paul does not suggest that there is a third that there is anything squeezed in between these two, that it's either not just all flesh or all spirit, but there might be something kind of in the middle where we might have a, a bit of the spirit and, and a bit of the flesh. He doesn't suggest there's such a possibility that even such a thing exists. 
There are a lot of people, though, that like to go or want to go down that road because you want to have some of God, right? Because if I don't have any of God, then I'm going to miss out on some important things. So I want at least some of him so that I can have eternal life. And I, and I want some of him in case everything gets really, really bad. I've got someone to, to run to or if maybe there are circumstances that come up where I need some wisdom, I'll have somebody that I can go to and I can pray to to assist me. But it's on an as-needed basis. When it comes up, then I'll go ahead and search for it. And as long as things are going along pretty well, then I can pretty much do my own thing. I go my own way. I live my own life. I don't give a whole lot of thought to needing to rest in or run to something else. It's when things go off the rails when I might get some bad diagnosis or I have some trauma going on in my life where all of a sudden it's like, okay, I think now I need to, to go and lean a little bit more into that and get a little bit more out because on this as-needed basis, I need more right now. It kind of reminds me of a guy, literally true, there was a guy who came up to me once and he had been going through some real challenging things. And he said, this has been really, really helpful. And he, he said it a little bit in jest, but uh, his, his life proved that this is really what he wanted. He said, could I put you on retainer? So that like when I need you, I can call you up and you'll be available to help me. But, but otherwise, I'm pretty much going to do my own thing. It sounds ludicrous, but isn't that what so often so many of us do? Isn't that the way that we live, that we are somewhere kind of in the middle? We're not fully in the flesh, but we're not fully in the spirit. We lean into the spirit when it's beneficial, when we feel guilty, when we need something. Paul says, that's not even an option. There's no such thing. He says it's one way or the other. You might feel like you're in the middle, but you're not really because there's no middle category. You're either fully leaning in or you're fully leaning out. Jesus is pretty clear that the one who isn't all in isn't in at all. But Paul identifies a key truth about how we will live. In verse 5, we read it. He said, those who live according to the flesh set their mind on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. In other words, you set your mind on, you think about, you dwell on, you scroll through, you binge watch the things that are going to establish your character and your lifestyle. Tim Keller wrote this. He wrote, wherever your mind goes must naturally and freely Let me try that again. Wherever your mind goes, most naturally and freely, when there is nothing else to distract it, that is what you really live for. That is your religion. Your life is shaped by whatever occupies your mind. And as you just are doom scrolling through whatever it is you're doom scrolling through, those are the things that are influencing you. Those are the things that you're choosing to give your mind over to, to be changed by, to be influenced by. Getting this right is really important, as Paul points out as he goes on in verse 6. For to set the mind on the flesh is, what's the word? Death. To set your mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. That sounds better. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, 
for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Don't miss the weight of what Paul is saying here. The mindset on the flesh is death. It is hostile to God. It cannot please God. He's saying, if you think you're in a middle category, you're not really. If you're in the middle category, you're not living fully for Christ, which means you're living fully in the flesh. Even if there are efforts made to suggest you're living somewhere else, he says that's really the category that you fall into. It's important that we would understand that. We tend to think that when we live focused on ourselves or, or lukewarm toward God, that, that that's not good, but it could be worse, right? Because there are certainly people who are living worse than that. And it's not like you're out trying to make a bad name for God. You're not actively working against God. And so it's not good, but it could certainly be worse is what we think. And we start to justify our actions and we start to get comfortable there. Well, what Paul is trying to do here is make you uncomfortable. He's trying to get you sort of riled up and to not be willing to settle in. He says, if you're one who sort of follows Jesus with one foot in and one foot out, he says, you're really not in at all. He says, that's not kind of an average grade. It's not like you're a B minus Christian or a C plus Christian. He says, that's an F. He says, that's failure. In his words, it's hostility toward God. We think of it kind of as passivity or maybe apathy. He says, no, it's hostility. And it's important that we would be honest about this, that we would be brutally honest with ourselves about this, about the ugliness of it all, and that we wouldn't hold anything back. Kind of reminds me of, I saw this article not all that long ago. It was about a woman who was a foster parent of a chihuahua. And she wrote a brutally honest ad about this dog when she needed somebody to adopt the dog and take it off her hands. But she was brutally honest about Prancer. But she knew she wanted to try to make him sound palatable, but she knew he wasn't palatable at all. And so she... She wrote this about him. She knew there wasn't much of a market for a neurotic, man-hating, animal-hating, children-hating dog that looks like a gremlin. She wrote in her ad that if you have a husband or children in your home, do not adopt Prancer unless you hate them. And then go ahead and adopt. She continued, I'm convinced at this point that he's not a real dog, but more like a vessel for a traumatized Chucky doll that now haunts our home. That's what she wrote about this dog. And you would think an ad like that would have no takers whatsoever. But it turns out there were several people that responded to it. And now Prancer has a new home with a single lady. <laughs> it turns out that being brutally honest paid off for her in that circumstance. And I can tell you this, that being brutally honest with ourselves relative to where we really are in connection with God and where our mind is really set is something that is going to pay off for us as well. What does it do to your perspective to see your disinterest as open hostility to God? It's not just, yeah, I'm not everywhere I should be. 
but to see it as open hostility toward God or your casual attitude towards sin to be a slap in the face of Jesus? How would that change your perspective to take on that sort of understanding? If we see it for what it really is, is it something that might motivate you to greater devotion or greater faithfulness? I pray so. I hope so. Paul says instead, set your minds on the things of the Spirit, on God's glory, on His blessing, on truth, on righteousness, on, on loving God, of loving others, of, of sharing the gospel, of serving as Jesus served or as, as the Spirit calls us to. And on and on we could go. When those are the things that occupy our mind, it's going to change us. When you can choose the direction, let me just ask you, of where you can go, where do you go? How do you serve? What do you pursue? What do you scroll through? What do you consume? Your answer will let you know if you're living according to the flesh or according to the Spirit. Paul says you can be made new says everything's been done to give you this new mind, to live out this new promise to be made new. Then he goes on, he says there's one more aspect of being made new. Not just a new promise and a new mind, but also, lastly, a new power. The new power is that within, is that which is in me through the Spirit's presence. That's what Paul is making clear in verse 9. It says, you, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Him. But for the one who does belong to Jesus, they also have the Holy Spirit within, and with that Spirit comes power. One of the most often quoted verses in the whole Bible comes in Acts chapter 1 and verse 8. It'll ring true or ring familiar to most all of you. It says this, It says this, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. You will receive that power when, when the Holy Spirit, he says, comes on you to be Christ's witnesses in all the world is God's purpose for us. And he says the way that we get that done is through the power of the Spirit. It is, in fact, the power to do anything that honors Christ in our lives. As we cooperate with the Spirit, the Spirit does His work in us. As we work according to the flesh, we quench the power of the Spirit. But as we cooperate with, as we lean into, as we think on the things of the Spirit, our minds become, according to the mind of the Spirit, it influences us in that way. And that's when the, the Spirit-directed attributes of love and joy and peace and patience and self-control and on and on when those things rise up in us. But as we resist the Spirit by submitting to the flesh, we cut ourselves off from that power. Verse 10, but if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. If the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ, Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in you. When he says that our bodies are dead because of sin, he's saying that we're just subject to physical death because we have mortal bodies and that they're going to die. But he says that you have spiritual life, a spiritual life that continues on and 
on. That's the blessing that speaks about eternity, yes, but it's more than that. The Spirit indwells to give us victory, not just for down the road, not just for the future, not just for eternal life. The Spirit gives us power and victory for living our lives today, in this moment. If his only job was to secure your eternity, then there's no need for him to indwell you. He could just show up when you come to die, and then he could kind of take care of it for you and see your way into heaven. But we have this daily presence so that we might experience a new power for each circumstance that we encounter, for moment by moment. And the question is, are we using that moment by moment filling in order to change the way that we respond in all of the circumstances that do come our way in life. It's very important for us to wrestle with that idea. You can think of it as the fellowship that we would have with God. And what sort of fellowship do you think that you would have with the Spirit of God if He was present physically with you moment by moment? I can tell you one thing, you wouldn't ignore Him. I can tell you that you would never intentionally push Him away so that you could go off and sin But here's the thing, we do have the Spirit of God with us, moment by moment by moment, to give us the power to overcome. So how is it that recognizing and understanding who the Spirit is in our life, that we're able to somehow give Him the stiff arm and go off and do our own thing? We need to take on this mindset and this understanding that the Spirit of God is present with us. He's walking with us, hand in hand, day by day, giving us the power to overcome in every moment. But are we? We need to ask ourselves, are we giving ourselves far too often over to the flesh and allowing that to be the thing that overwhelms, which is the very thing that makes us hostile toward God, Not just lukewarm, but hostile toward God, he says. He's right there with us every moment for fellowship and to live in harmony. Put that picture in your mind as you live day by day and see if it doesn't just transform your perspective. Friends, through the Spirit of God, we have been made new with a new promise, no condemnation, with a new mind, and with a new power. Let's live like it. Heavenly Father, we acknowledge there were people like Paul doing what we all ought not to do, not doing what we ought to do. But yet in the midst of that, we're also people for all who have bowed their knees to Jesus and given our heart and our life over to you that we are people now who have been made new. We're people of whom it is true that there is now no condemnation. Therefore, for those who are in Christ Jesus. We've been given a power. We've been given the Spirit of God to walk with us moment by moment. Yet how often do we take and push Him aside so that we might just pursue our own interest, our own sin, our own selfishness, our own desire, our own interests, and ignore yours. That's what's necessary in order to walk our own way is that we push away the presence of God's Spirit who's been given to us that we might live victoriously in every moment. Lord, do not allow us 
to move into sin apart from this mindset, this understanding of what we're, we're doing to you in the process, pushing the Spirit of God away, choosing the flesh over the Spirit. And as we do so, not just tripping up a little bit, but living according to death and hostility toward God, unable to please you. That's what Paul says. We've been given so much yeah, we just kind of kick it to the curb. Lord, may that picture fill our mind and fill our heart as we leave this place, as we go into the week before us, so that we might recognize what is available to us and who we become as we choose to live in that power. Lord, make us those people made new, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.